Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Continuing with the chapter, the second exit point from the cycle. And we've just been talking about um, the uh, difficulties that come from crossing that bridge between feeling and craving, Vedana and Tanha. This principle goes against a lot of our current cultural conditioning. In the West, we put a lot of effort and money and energy into getting lost in what we like and what we love and what we hate. We pay good money to get carried away by that train. I'm speaking from my own experience. There can be a certain thrill and excitement that comes from being carried away from that type of absorption. Biting the apple. But some of us are tired of experiencing the bit that comes after, the sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. So please do come into the, the yes there's cushions and mats yeah don't be afraid in terms of working with the mind the most common teaching of the forest ajans is the aiming of attention at the connection between feeling and craving vedana and tanha this was a common teaching for ajahn sao ajahn man and ajahn cha and it was a common teaching in classical times as well. This connection between feeling and craving is described as the weakest link of the cycle. This is where we can have the most effect with the least complications and painful side effects. It's also notable that within the the Buddha's uh, explanation of how he laid out the Four Noble Truths and the cause of dukkha, he names as as tanha, as craving. He doesn't call ignorant, uh, doesn't say ignorance or uh, uh, or um, anything else, he, he specifically names tanha as the the origin or the cause of dukkha, because that uh, uh, I would say is uh, that's the sort of the the the, um, the key point, the the sort of the uh, the crucial point uh, where the mind really gets lost, and so when the the mind is is drawn into craving, then it's it's very very likely that uh, dukkha is going to be a result of that. So. Um, there, in the teaching of dependent origination, the cycle starts at, at uh, avijja, at ignorance. But uh, I think I feel it's significant that in the, the uh, description of the Four Noble Truths, which is the sort of pocket version of dependent origination, that the Buddha highlights uh, tanha, craving, as uh, as the source, as the cause of dukkha, because it's much more tangible, visible, uh, than and apparent than avicca, sort of just not seeing clearly or not not being completely mindful, not being aware, that's far more difficult to discern or is, is a bit vague, more vague and unclear, whereas craving, tanha, has uh, got a lot more in the way of sharp edges. The emphasis is on learning how to be restrained with respect to pleasant feelings, how to be patient with painful, uncomfortable feelings and alert to neutral feelings. 
This kind of learning to work with the realm of feeling is the centerpiece of our forest tradition training. On a practical level, this is carried out through learning how to find contentment with having very few possessions or desire objects. That said, we don't aim to torture ourselves, but the forest monastic life is a very direct training, aiming right at our attachments and habits, our preferences. Most of us don't realize the degree to which the mind is addicted to chasing things that are pleasant and resisting things that are painful. If we become aware of the degree of addiction and learn how to not get lost in feeling, at the uh, at that moment where feeling changes to craving, we free the heart in a very radical way. And uh, uh, a few sessions ago, I was talking about this being the, the basis of uh, the forest sort of tradition practice and Dutanga practices. Um, so uh, that, um, say, uh, the, the form of our life and our way of training, of keeping things very honest, very simple, uh, having few possessions and few desire objects, so that uh, keeping a standard of celibacy, uh, not seeking entertainments, uh, being honest, non-violent, um, uh, having a fewness of needs, uh, living communally, uh, sharing the, the resources that we have. All of these are sort of principles that are trying to establish a, a, a standard of, of, uh, of simplicity and a, um, a, la- a kind of diminishing the uh, personal emotional entanglement that uh, can so easily be a large part of, of uh, human life. And so that uh, learning how to work with, with pleasant feelings, so that uh, the pleasant feelings that we have, they are they're not things that we're going to chase, that we're going to create a lot of karma around, other than maybe eating too much uh, uh, one day, or filling our mind with too, many, uh, too, too much uh, Buddhist literature, <laughs> or non-Buddhist literature. That, uh, so that uh, when the sensory indulgence, if you're keeping within the bounds of the, the standards and conduct, you can't really go... Uh, too far into um, into negativity, uh, into sort of the negative results. Similarly, with with negative feelings, we're not engaging in physical violence or not engaging in in um, uh, sort of uh, following up feelings of contention or, or um, uh, aggression towards other uh, towards other people. So that um, uncomfortable feelings or, or uh, negative feelings, negative impressions of other people, we're not acting on them. We might feel them, <laughs> might spill out into the world, into the realm of speech, but uh, we're not sort of poisoning each other. There's nobody sort of sneaking into the, <laughs> sneaking uh, uh, poisons into the porridge to, to do away with, you know, that monk who's really annoying. <laughs> but, uh, we refrain from murder and, uh, and such like. Um, and uh, so that um, the uh, the aim of the of our lives and the way of life is simplicity, keeping things very benign, and uh, so that we can watch the patterns of liking, disliking, and neutral feelings that they they can be known without uh, the mind getting sort of drawn into uh, emotionally intense and karmically loaded uh, choices like like. Uh, acting violently towards other people, acting dishonestly towards other people, engaging sexually with other people, and so uh, so on and so forth. And then, as I was mentioning the other day, the Dutanga practices, the, the forest tradition life, we, we uh, make use of the, the Dutangas, these uh, particular ways of, uh, sort of, in a way, <laughs> sort of, uh, 
raising the stakes, uh, as it were, if you can use a gambling, <laughs> a gambling analogy, to, um, to challenge the, those habits of attachment a bit uh, more acutely. And so things like limiting the, the amount of uh, food you have or how many times, eating strictly one, uh, one meal a day, um, or uh, uh, limiting uh, your things in terms of your, your, your living place, your living space, so having very few possessions or very few furnishings, um, uh, with sleep, just sleeping so many hours a day or um, not lying down to sleep and such like. So the, the, again, I realize most people are lay, uh, lay people here, but, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're all living in a, in a, a monastery out of the forest tradition. So it's helpful to understand that these, these Dutanga practices, um, they're not uh, a form of self-torture. They were all specifically allowed and des- described and allowed by the Lord Buddha of, that they're ways of challenging those very basic attachments we have, as I was saying the other day, to sleep, comfort, food, and personal space. They're all, that's generally what they're, 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 so all, they're all sort of geared towards those very basic instincts, uh, the, what I would call the reptile brain territory uh, of the mind. And so that, um, you know, and I've often said when, when, uh, how when, when I was a, a novice, I, I undertook the practice of, of just living on the food that was given on the armstrong through the village. Yeah, it's, it was amazing. You could see what was on the plate of a villager you know, about 50 yards away. And, you know, and you're sort of fifth, fourth or fifth in line. And you could see past all the other novices and monks, all the way to the villagers kneeling down in the, on the village street, like 50 yards away, and you count the bananas. <laughs> Damn, there's only four. I'm, I'm you know, number six on the line, so I'm not going to get a banana. So. Yeah, really, I mean, it's just, it's kind of amazing how sharp your vision could get when it's like, ah, food, food, want food, you know. And uh, with a 21 year old body with a full, fully active desire system, the only thing you can, uh, the only desire objects you can, you can latch onto is, is food, then it's amazing how clear a plate can be at 50 yards. So. So that, uh, but those are the kind of, um, it's a, you don't do it to torture yourself or, or make life difficult, um, but it's uh, to get to know those instinctual attachments, we, you know, food, sleep, comfort, personal space and such like. So that there's a, a, a skillful and deliberate challenging of those instinctual reactions, not because discomfort is, intrin- is intrinsically liberating, <laughs> but because it, it, uh, and, the the very act of having chosen to create that limitation you know you've asked for it you've you've uh, you've uh, deliberately taken that on so it gives it a different context uh, and so then it's a, an opportunity to look at that um, wanting to get comfortable or wanting to to not be so hot or not so co- or not too cold or wanting to not feel hunger or uh, see how the mind relates to to food and so on and so forth. Um, it was it was interesting to me because living in uh, in northeast Thailand in the late seventies, it was the the, uh, the food was very very poor. Generally, it was um, what Pananachar was very well supported, but still, it's the uh, it was a kind of protein and vitamin free diet. <laughs> I would say, with all great respect to the villagers of Bungwai and Warin uh, locally, but the, the the food was was generally pretty poor, and. Um, so uh, uh, I was so skinny when, you know, there were not that many white monks coming off the plane. 
But uh, when my, my mother and my sisters were there at the airport to meet me, as also uh, a couple of the monks from Chithurst, um, and my sisters didn't recognize me. There were, there were not a crowd of white, I mean, I was the only one white monk. I mean, I did have a lot of hair before, when, I, when I left, but I had no hair when I came back. And my mother recognized me, but my sisters didn't recognize me. So uh, anyway, uh, uh, I went, uh, when I came back to, to England, it was because my father had a heart attack and then um, uh, a couple of days after I'd arrived, and uh, you know, my mother had met me at the airport, then my dad, when my dad was off the critical list, then my mother collapsed. So she was in one hospital, and my father was in another hospital. And so uh, I stayed with the family, with my sisters, shuttling back and forth between different hospitals for uh, about three or four weeks. Um, then my mother came out of the hospital, she recovered. and uh, So during that time, I was being... Uh, uh, abundantly fed with <laughs> the, uh, the the English diet of sort of feed feed the boy. You know, he's he's hungry, and I, I put on about what would it be? It was, it was about a stone. Um, yeah, the, uh, in in less than a month, I, I put on I'll be about six kilos, seven kilos <laughs> in a month. Uh, and so, and it was what was really interesting um, in terms of meditation was, whereas in Thailand, my, you know, a lot of my my mind, my fantasy life would go to towards food and expectation of food. Once my body was sort of nourished and there was lots of food around, then it was amazing how I could you know sit for a whole hour and like and the idea of food didn't cross my mind. It's like, oh, that changed, <laughs> and just seeing how that. Uh, the conditions as they were produced that those particular mind states of you know uh, food is good where is food I want food and then when the the body had a bit more nourishment in it then that was that was completely gone so something that had been such like a, a strong or repetitive presence saying oh that was totally dependent on conditions and uh, with the, the the when the conditions change then those mind states uh, don't have any basis they, they don't arise. So these these Dutanga practices are about getting to know how convincing those uh, those urges towards comfort or or um, personal space or you know food and sleep and so forth how convincing how powerful they can be like as non and they're not sort of non-verbal non-conceptual uh, forces that we that we feel they're very much reptile brain and non-conceptual uh, forces in the mind. But uh, how to we can recognize? Oh, this is even though this is it declares itself as something you know, real, important, and solid. Uh, it is just a mind state, and and then the the the, uh, the attention doesn't have to be absorbed in that, doesn't have to be carried away by that. And so the, the purpose of those, the simplicity of our life, and particularly the the Dutanga practices, is to help develop that skill to get to know uh, the realm of, of feeling, feeling liking, disliking. And so forth, um, without uh, without confusion, just to know that oh, this is feeling, and to help them to train the mind not to cross that bridge between feeling and craving. Um, so it's like developing those spiritual muscles, if you like, that's spiritual strength to know just just because you're you're hungry, it's not the end of the world, just or just because you've eaten too much and then you're full, <laughs> then it's also not the end of the world. But the the mind is getting to know that realm of feeling directly and is uh, learning how not to be confused or 
to be um, entrapped in that. So, any thoughts, questions? Okay. Uh, one, one other example that comes to mind, actually, talking about this, uh, the uh, many of us don't realize the degree to which the mind is addicted to things. Uh, a, a very uh, interesting experience when I went to a, a conference with the, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama in, in uh, McLeod Ganj Dharamsala in, in India, and it was it was March, um, and it was a, a, a conference for a, for a number of Western Buddhist teachers to, to meet together with, with the Dalai Lama. And um, we were all staying in this, this particular hotel in, in McLeod Ganj, which is a little town up on the hill where the, the Dalai Lama's uh, monastery and uh, sort of home village is. And uh, there, was a, there were power cuts. There was, there was, uh, power was out in McLeod Ganj. And um, so there was about 25 or 30 of us as Western Dhamma teachers. And um, so one of the, the people in the group um, it was very. It was. It was March. It was. It was. It was about this kind of temperature, sort of cold, damp. You know, not quite freezing, but definitely uh, damp and dank. Have a wonderful word in in the north of England, drich. The Northumbrian word drich is a kind of cold, damp, grey, drich kind of weather. <laughs> so anyway, um, she, uh, uh, this particular Dhamma teacher, um, sort of asked the the hotel manager. Um, 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 you know, my uh, my clothes are quite damp from the um, uh, from our travels. Um, can, I, can I can I use a drying machine? <laughs> Terribly sorry, madam. There's no power. There, there's we don't have a dryer. She said, no, no. You, uh, but I've got to dry my clothes. That th- this we have no means of uh, of creating uh, heat for you, madam. This is uh, this is the temperature it is. You'll just have to hang your clothes up and wait for them to dry. But she said, but, it, but the, it's cold and damp, they're, they're not going to get dry. And I'm sorry. And it was, uh, I'm not trying to make fun of her or, or, or belittle her, but it was, it was really interesting how she became really distressed at, and she'd never come across having a sort of comfortable Western, Western middle-class life. She'd never come across a situation where she couldn't just have dry clothes or that they, they could get warmth in a room. It was just, She'd never experienced that, and it's like, but you don't understand. I've got my, my everything's damp, and uh, the this poor fellow was like, "Sorry, madam, <laughs> nothing to be done." But it was it was really interesting. Someone who's a very gifted dhamma teacher and uh, very highly respected. In that moment, it was like that re- revelation of how there was a, an expectation of I can always have dry clothes, or I can always, I can find a place of comfort. And not knowing what to do, not knowing how to handle that sense of, of no, it's it's cold and damp, and here it is, it's like this, and and uh, at that time not having a a refuge for that. A counterpart to that is when I was on Tudong with Lumpur Sumato in um, the northwest of England in 1987. We went on a a Tudong through Lancashire and through the forest of Boland and into the Lake District. And uh, the day we set off, it was brilliant sunshine, walking along a canal, it was nice and level, beautiful flowers blooming, like wild uh, you know, wild yellow irises. Oh, well, this is a nice Tudong. <laughs> so then that was day one. And then, and then uh, we walked up this, this steep hill into the, into, the, into the hills, and it was like horizontal rain for the next you know, four or five days. It was absolutely pouring down, everything was soaked. 
And uh, Nick Scott was was leading us through this. Uh, and so day after day, it was just pouring with rain. And after three or four days of walking through the, the this landscape, we got to Morecambe Bay. And we're, we're camping by Morecambe Bay, um, near to the Manjushri Institute. And, uh, <clears throat> and so we we kind of un- unpacked and got the tents up and I was sharing a tent with Lumpur and uh, everything was wet. There was one dry sock between th- the three of us. Everything else was wet. All our clothes were wet, the tents were wet, the sleeping bags were wet. Everything was wet. And it was that same kind of dreary, <laughs> soggy weather. And, uh, and Lumpur, he's often mentioned it in Dhamma talks, he said, climbing into a wet sleeping bag when you're exhausted on a cold, you know, on a cold night he said, actually, it's quite all right. So this is, uh, if you asked, he said, if you asked me, it would be a, you know, a horrible thing to do. But said, actually, climbing into a wet sleeping bag in a dripping tent on a rainy night in the north of England, and it's actually okay. And, you know, and, and that was quite a realization, quite a, that something that's so off-putting on, you know, in theory, but actually, in it, it's like, oh, you know, if the mind doesn't make a problem out of it, it's just this. And then we did have big tumble dryers at Manjushri, <laughs> able to dry everything uh, the, the next day. But it was a, it was a, in, an insightful moment, uh, just where everything is wet. And it's when you've got a few things that are still dry, you're trying to hang on to them. But then when everything is wet, and there's, no, there's absolutely no alternative, then something just says, okay. Yeah, here we are. But uh, my my good friend in Dharamsala, she didn't have that um, access to that that uh, evenness of mind. But that's uh, one of the causes for us to be living simply and having a few possessions and making uh, 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 the um, as a, as a, uh, Suzuki Roshi put it that the Buddhist practice is changing from finding happiness through getting what you like to liking what you get. It's a very simple nugget. (laughs) Okay, to continue. With respect to dependent origination, Ajahn Shah pointed out, as mentioned earlier, that this process happens very fast. It's like falling from a tree and trying to count the branches on the way down. Generally, all you know is that when you hit the ground, it hurts. In terms of neurophysiology, Pasa, sense contact, is the electrical impulse going from the sense organ through the nerves to the brain. In the case of vision, light is registered, captured by the eye, an impulse travels through the optic nerve to the brain and triggers the region of the brain that relates to vision. This is Pasa, the electrical sense contact. Vedana, so it's a Sayatana Pasa Vedana, uh, six senses contact uh, feeling. Vedana is probably best translated as sensation rather than feeling because the word feeling tends to carry the sense of emotion. Vedana is almost always defined as simply pleasant, painful or neutral sensation. And uh, so Anagarika Margit's not here today. So, But uh, anyway, she brought up the other day that uh, there are broader definitions or other places where it does uh, refer more to uh, qualities of emotional tone. So it's it, um, what I've written here in, in the book is uh, it's a, uh, a kind of rough description. But uh, the other uh, other aspects of uh, what's called pleasant mental feeling is somanasa. So when when we do the the funeral chanting, we go through the the uh, vipassana bhumi, the basis of insight. 
So that somanasindriyang, domanasindriyang, upekindriyang. So somanasa is pleasant mental feeling. So it's a kind of vedana, but it's a, it's a specifically mental feeling. And domanasa is unpleasant mental feeling. And so uh, a number of, of um, say, mind states or, or things that we, we deal with in terms of so in terms of Western psychology, in terms of depression, and uh, and or self uh, self hatred, self criticism, uh, depressive mental states, and such like, then dominasa uh, would refer to a certain amount of that as a certain overlap between dominasa and um, and the Western psychological uh, ideas or principles of depression. And there's a um, uh, a, a particular Buddhist group um, that uh, I think their their website is kind of dominasa.org <laughs> or .uk .dot uh, is uh, and it's uh, using Buddhist meditation to work with depression using particularly uh, mindfulness based cognitive therapy for depression and so that uh, I haven't looked it up but uh, recently but uh, yeah so they use the term dominasa as a, sort of the the name for that um, that group or that that um, collection of uh, teachings and materials that they they uh, make available. So, <clears throat> Vedana, it is not complicated. We inherit this from our most remote ancestors, little monocellular plankton of billions of years ago. Even an entity as simple as that can perceive: Does it hurt? Does it not hurt? Is it pleasant? Can I ignore it? Can I consume it? Will it consume me? Vedana is generally uh, a very basic experience. So that uh, it's, so the most so uh, rudimentary forms of uh, of, uh, of life in little zooplankton or, or monocellular entities that they know you know what what is edible, what's what they can consume in terms of food that's nourishing, they can move towards it. What's dangerous, and they can move away from it. Uh, what's a, a predator that's going to attack them? Then they can recognize the signs of a predator and move away. So these instincts of pleasant, painful, and you know, and to, to be ignored, they are they're very, very um, uh, fundamental. They're kind of very ancient, deeply rooted instinctual impulses in us. So they're not uh, they're not e- they're not easy to ignore or overlook. They have a, and so it's important to recognize that the power or the strength that those uh, that the, the realm of Vedana has these are you know very ancient, deeply rooted instincts. So that and uh, and I think this is one of the reasons why the Buddha points to Tanha as the, the cause of, of dukkha. It's like recognizing that it, the the habitual reactions to Vedana, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling, are so strong, so deeply rooted. It's very easy to cross that bridge to. I like to. I want. I've got to have. Or I. I, I don't like. Or this is dangerous. Get away. Or uh, I, I hate. That those are very powerful forces in the mind. But by pointing directly to tanha, say pay, pay attention to this spot, vedana uh, pachaya tanha, and then that can that can make, can make all the difference in the world if that if that realm of feeling is genuinely understood and and there's a, a we develop a kind of robustness or strength. Um, in relationship to liking, disliking, and a neutral feeling, then that goes a long way to supporting our spiritual efforts. And, and again, it's one of the main reasons of 
the, the mode of practice and the way of life that we have in the forest tradition. The question can arise, what is it that knows Vedana? The simplest answer is that it is the awareness of the mind. Awareness is the medium of knowing. It's the means whereby anything and everything is known. On this point, I would suggest to keep it simple rather than to try to conceptualize the nature of that awareness. All that needs to be known is, here is pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling. This means being aware rather than thinking about awareness. In this way, the habit of crossing the bridge can be observed and understood. We can learn how the mind shifts from experiencing a pleasant feeling to, oh, I want to have that. Yes. If I can ask a question, pleasant um, feeling is something that is promising, right? So, uh, if, for example, you see something, and um, okay, I can consume it, uh, it's promising that it will give some nourishment. It means that uh, emotional tone is pleasant, mm-hmm. and you are uh, encouraged by the body to do it. And if it's some kind of thought, like mental impression, and like somebody said to you something, and it means like something good for you in social terms or in terms of future, mm-hmm. and it has a positive tone to it, so it's also promising. Mm-hmm. But it's still not Tanha yet, right? So if uh, in, in, uh, in terms of idea or thought, and you have a pleasant feeling, some joy arises, it means that it's something like your mind calculated that it's something good for you for mm-hmm. the future. Um, but after it, like you can recognize that what it's doing, but it's still not to cross the bridge to the top. Yeah, if you if you've if it's the the point where you believe in the promise, mm-hmm. it's like looking at an advert in uh, an advertisement in uh, in a magazine or a newspaper or on a, you know some kind of um, uh, uh, say thing that is presented is promising you if you go on this holiday you'll be happy or if you if you have this watch then you'll be uh, you'll it'll be reliable and, and be have be giving you all kinds of wonderful possibilities and such like so you can know that there's a promise there <laughs> or the other side with a threat you know and the negative you can know that the, it's going with with like advertisements you know there's a promise but you don't there doesn't have to be the belief in that that you can recognize oh this is this is making its presentation of its promising happiness if you have this car or this holiday or this watch or whatever but so you can the mind can recognize oh there's a there's a promise there but it doesn't have to believe it, it doesn't have to buy into that so i would say exactly you're exactly right it's it's the um knowing this is likable this is pleasant this is attractive but so what <laughs> yeah there there isn't the, the the compulsion to pick it up so um the uh where it becomes tanha is ooh <laughs> the, the the mind is born into that and and, and say so it it believes in the promise or it believes in the, the threat or, or and uh, and so it's it's buying into the content of it um if it just if it, there's an awareness oh this is a promise or this is something that's uh, is being presented in an attractive in a way to attract the attention okay it's it's just that much the mind isn't adding anything onto it it's just it's just knowing it as it is like so the the word asada gratification uh, uh, and then its partner adinava 
the downside or the, the shadow, the liability. So it's very helpful to, to get to know that. That And uh, I, I mentioned it a few times, how the the Buddha is acknowledging that, yes, there is gratification when there is something that's pleasant, like a pleasant taste or a sound or a, or a visual object or, a, uh, or like I say, a... a, a a promise of a oh this is that you know this, this looks good or that, uh, this tastes delicious um, that gratification that asada is there but uh, the problems come when the mind then buys into that and thinks oh this is going to make me happy in a substantial way or I, I can I can keep this or this is this this makes me a good person or an impressive person or a powerful person uh, an attractive person um, that kind of thing. And so that it's uh, knowing that it's not a matter of, uh, of pretending or, or suppressing that gratification, or like to not see or feel, or taste anything. To kind of neutralize the senses. It's not a matter of of wiping out sense activity. And I feel that that's very helpful in in the Buddha's teaching. Like yes, there is the gratification, but its partner like, <laughs> is the adinava, the liability. That yes, there is that. It's gratifying, but there's its partner in, in that if uh, that the um, it can only be uh, exciting or satisfying to a certain degree, or if um, it, that it can't make you permanently uh, happy, or it can't it, it can't give all, uh, bring all of the effects that you think uh, it might do. Uh, that, uh, and if you invest hope and uh, commitment in that object, whatever it might be. Again, not just watches and cars, but also Dhamma teachers or, you know, the monasteries or, you know, the, the oh, yeah, that is the thing that's going to make all the difference. And the, the mind buys into that gratification. Then the liability, the, the degree to which you've invested in that, then and you, you also invest in the heartbreak that comes when it lets you down. You know, the, the monastery is not the, it's not the, uh, such a welcoming place or the, the watch breaks down or the, <laughs> The, your car gets scratched, like in that example. Uh, uh, that that the that the they go together, the the asada and adinava. But if that's known, that oh, this is just grat- this is gratification. Yes, there's a, there's this liking. Yes, you're not pretending that you don't like it. That there isn't that liking, but the the mind isn't confused about that or not expecting too much of it. It's just the gratifying experience. Yes, this is the yes experience. That's all. So then, it's it's known and fully accepted, but it, the the there isn't uh, any limitation that comes from that. Yes, uh, Ajahn, I'd like to ask about uh, dealing with emotions, about the emotions, uh, the negative ones, like anger and like deepest layers of of, uh, of hate that can arise from time to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, during this process of, of purifying and allowing things to be raised to consciousness or to awareness in order to just to release and to purify oneself. And when I uh, when I look sometimes at those moments where the anger or, or hate can arise, even though there is the experience that's impersonal because that's not who I am, but sometimes when the awareness is not swift enough, one is not, the discernment is not swift enough, that energy can slip through and take form of thought. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then one 
he is somehow responsible already for the violence that the thought carries as the energy. So my question would be, is that a karmic already creating a karmic response, even the thinking of thought, which I understand is not me? Um, uh, well, it's, uh, I mean, there's, there's different ways of, of relating to it. It's, it's important to recognize sila, or virtue, uh, only relates to action and speech in, in that respect, in, in the strict definition of it. And so, if there is a skillful attitude, you know, if that un, uh, like violent or angry thoughts and feelings arise, um, if they, <laughs> they're already sort of come into, come into being, the, the, uh, if the practice is developed, then there can be a recognition of, of knowing those feelings, knowing those emotions and those waves, and not suppressing them, but not identifying with them as, as me and mine, but knowing them as they are. So, uh, if, if you've read or listened to many of Lumpur Sumedha's Dhamma talks, he, he experienced a lot of anger when he was a, a young monk and a novice. And, and he always thought of himself as a very sort of friendly, loving, liberal, easygoing kind of a person. And he didn't realize how much he just sort of su- had suppressed his angry impulses. So when he was spending that first year in, um, uh, in the Kuti in, uh, in Nongkai when he was a novice, uh, he was astonished at the, <laughs> the, the waves of rage that would come up in the relationship, particularly to his, particularly to his family, his uh, parents and so on. And uh, so the, the, this, I'm a nice person, I would never do that. <laughs> you know, the, kind of su- surprised at the intensity of it, but it was really just, in a sense, letting go or acknowledging things that have been suppressed or hidden away. Um, so... It, if it's understood and, and known for what it is, then the, it's more like it's the resultant karma, it's the vipaka of habits that have been created in the past. It's like, okay, it bears this fruit. But if uh, if it's not um, acted on, or if it's not suppressed, or, or identified with, or this is, I've got an anger problem, I've got to do something with this, so I don't, I don't have this anger problem, so it's turning to me and mine, then that either suppressing or, or indulging or, or even that kind of identifying with that that's all going to be feeding it or, or, or kind of making it stronger, creating new karma around it. But if it's just known for what it is, then it, uh, it, it it's just the, the sort of resonance of or the results of past actions, past habits. And so there's nothing negative about it at all. Like uh, you know, Lumpur Shah was was famous for his uh, having a short temper, and uh, he had to work with a lot. And uh, I um, in the in the the the, the book uh, the island I put together with uh, Ajahn Pasno uh, uh, recounted this incident where a a, a palm a palm reader came to Wat Bapong and Ajahn Chah was very anti superstition and astrology and, and fortune telling of every kind. And this guy who came to visit, he knew, and he was a professional astrologer, and he, he thought he was going to keep quiet about his, his livelihood. <laughs> but uh, he found himself trying to look to, to see Ajahn Chah's hands as he was you know, sitting and talking and kind of making gestures. And so uh, he, uh, after being with Vidal uh, Lumpur Chah for quite some time, he couldn't resist thinking, well, I know he's going to give me a bad time because he, he's really down on fortune tellers, but... Uh, 
you know, he, could, he couldn't resist. So at the end, he asked Lumpur, you know, Lumpur, I realize, you know, you don't approve of astrology and, and fortune telling and such like, but I'm a, I'm a palm reader and a, you know, Mordo, uh, kind of, it's my, I'm a sort of psychic astrologer type. Um, all right. Uh, <coughs> uh, Mordo is, it literally translates as a, a doctor of seeing. Okay, so that's a, or like an astrologer or a fortune teller. It's a very broad category. Anyway, so Lumpur Chai gave him a bit of a bad time. Eventually, said, "Okay, yeah, take a look. Yeah, tell me, am I going to am I going to win the lottery?" Yeah. <laughs> 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 kind of thing. So anyway, the, the fellow uh, looked at his hands and said, and he was quite startled. And he said, "Lumpur, this line here says you've got a lot of anger." And Lumpur said, "Yes, but I don't use it." <laughs> So that he he was aware of that, that habit and it, it, it had been a big feature of his, his life. Uh, he'd be really impatient and intolerant of, of people and things, but he'd worked with it a lot so that um, it uh, that didn't have a place to land. And that, that his comment was, "Yes, yeah, but I don't use it." So that, uh, and then when Lumpur Dun similarly was asked by a disciple when he was in his nineties. Hey, Lumpur, uh, do you still uh, do you still have anger? And he said, he said, me damn my owl, which is like uh, it's yes, it's there, but I don't accept it or I don't receive it. Like a, a, a you know, the, something comes in the post and it's come to the wrong address. You say, oh, no, there's <laughs> you brought the parcel to the wrong address. You know, like a, it's a return to sender. You know. This, 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 it's not. It's not for this address. You take the parcel away. So it's, like, it's, it's not received or not accepted. Okay. So the next section is called experiencing pain and discomfort. So this again. This is going into a bit more detail about a particular aspect of meditation. When sitting in meditation for long periods of time, it's very natural to have pain in our legs back and different parts of the body. When pain arises in the body, this is an ideal opportunity to look at the process of feeling and, while looking at it and feeling it, learn how not to add anything to it. We feel pain. We feel dislike for that sensation, but we can train the mind to simply know that as it is. We can train the mind not to create suffering out of that painful feeling. This is described in the teachings uh, in a sutta sim- called simply the arrow. You know, an arrow is from a bow and arrow. People understand that. The Buddha used the image of a soldier being shot on the battlefield, and you know, that you, people often forget that or don't realize that you know the Buddha was a soldier for a long time. It was, it was a, a long military background from when he was a teenager to when he was twenty-nine. He was a warrior noble, so he has a lot of military analogies in his in his uh, teachings, in his language. It's uh, often not acknowledged, but you have a lot of, of military language and, and examples. So this is one of them. So the image is one of a soldier being shot with an arrow on the battlefield. The first arrow that hits the soldier represents the feeling of physical pain. If you have a body in mind, this first arrow is inescapable. The second arrow that is fired at the soldier is everything the mind adds to that. Fearing the pain, resenting it, negotiating with it, waiting for it to be over, 
All of that fretting, worrying, stressing around the feeling of pain. That is the second arrow. The Buddha said that the second arrow can be avoided if we are aware, if we are mindful. It's quite a short sutta. If you want to look it up, it's in the um, uh, Connected Discourses. I think it's in the Salayatana, the Connected Discourses about the Six Senses. Sutta number six, called the arrow, Salla, the Salla Sutta. In the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha talks about the complete ending of suffering. That ending of suffering, quote-unquote, is not about never experiencing physical pain. Rather, it is all about the, the second arrow, what the mind adds onto things. So, uh, again, I've mentioned that a few times, but uh, talking about Dukkha Niroda, it's not never having any physical pain, not having any, or any, even any mental pain, like the Dhammanasa, Somanasa, uh, but it's all about the second arrow, uh, what the mind adds to those natural uh, painful feelings. Even if you are a fully enlightened Buddha, nobody can evade, evade the first arrow of physical pain. When he was an old man, the Buddha had chronic back pain. He felt physical pain all the time. He said that only if he absorbed his mind into complete emptiness would he not be aware of painful feeling in the body. So the image he used, he said, my body is like an old cart held together with strings and straps. And, and so the, uh, the only way I can experience comfort is to completely absorb the mind into emptiness. If he was aware of the body, he was aware of painful feeling. And that's the, the beginning of the um, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the, the discourse about the, the Buddha's last days. So, Diganikaya, Long Discourses, Sutta number 16. Although the Buddha experienced physical pain, he knew how not to suffer from it. So when we sit in meditation for long periods of time, that's a good opportunity to learn how to avoid the second arrow. We can experience physical pain, but the heart can be completely at peace with it. With the right attitude, pain might be present, but it is known as absolutely not a problem. So also sometimes people think, well, you know, the Buddha had such good meditation, he didn't feel the physical pain. But he, it's, not a, uh, it's not an insignificant comment. It's a, but, uh, he said, only if he completely ab absorbs his mind into emptiness. And I think in that context, context it means withdrawing his attention from all sense activity, then he would feel comfort. He would he, uh, be free of pain. If he was paying attention to the sensory field, uh, the, then there would be pain uh, mixed in with that. And so, uh, and I think I mentioned the other day how there's, it's not uncommon where he says, uh, uh, he's giving a Dhamma talk, leaning against the pillar in the middle of the Dhamma hall, or he says to, to Venerable Sariputta, Sariputta, my back is paining me, the assembly is still awake, I'm going to go and rest my back, you know, please carry on giving a, a teaching. Or another, there's another very poignant moment where the Buddha is sitting on the, the veranda, the, the porch of his kuti, and the, the sun is setting, and he, he's warming his back in the rays of the setting sun, like a heat lamp, sort of easing his back, using the heat of the sun to, to ease the aches in his back. And, and then uh, Venerable Ananda comes along, and there's a little dialogue between them, and Ananda says, it's amazing, it's incredible, you used to be the, the body of the Tathagata used to be so young and muscular and vigorous, and now it's... The, it's all kind of saggy and old and wrinkled. And the, the Buddha says, yes, indeed, Ananda. <laughs> the body, indeed, is all wrinkled and saggy and, and old. Yeah. Youth has gone. 
The advice Ajahn Chah would give about physical pain in meditation was to make the effort to work with it. If we move our body as soon as we feel discomfort, we never learn how to get beyond suffering. It's a bit of a sweeping statement, I realize on my part, but uh, um, I would, that's uh, one of the, the chief ways that we learn to, to uh, get beyond suffering, to evade that second arrow, is to develop a quality of endurance uh, or to not just shying away from physical pain and as soon as we feel discomfort to, to change the posture and to get the, um, uh, see, to get rid of the, the painful feeling as fast as we can but to develop a, a, something of a quality of patience. So, uh, if, we, if we move our body as soon as we feel discomfort we never learn how to get beyond suffering. We never learn how to avoid that second arrow. If we're trying to pay attention to our breath and we start to experience pain in the knee or the thigh or the back, we may think, ah, if only that pain wasn't there, I could concentrate properly. It really hurts. I wish it would go away. I'm not reading anybody's mind. It's, uh, this is just <laughs> very familiar, I think, for probably all of us that this is the, the way the mind works. We unconsciously create resistance, negativity, aversion, fear around the painful feeling. When we notice that the mind is reacting to the pain in that way, the most helpful response is to turn the attention to where the painful feeling is. Don't think of it as an unwanted intruder, but instead make it the center of attention. In other words, invite it, welcome it in. When we bring attention to physical pain, we notice that there are two aspects to it a physical aspect and a mental aspect. On the physical side, there is usually resistance. The body tenses up against it. The muscles become tight and rigid in the area of that pain. So, firstly, we place the attention on that area and consciously invite those muscles to relax. Let those muscles be free of tension, free of stress and tightness. When working with the tension that comes from the mental aspect, consciously bring to mind the quality of patience thinking, it's a painful feeling, but it can be tolerated for another couple of minutes. No permanent physical damage will happen within the next little while. Let's see if I can be fully patient, fully accepting of the sensation. Here it is, right now. It's just a painful feeling. Bring these kinds of thoughts to mind. Be accepting. Acknowledge this painful feeling as part of the natural physical process. In this manner, we relax the body and we relax the attitude. When we work with physical pain in this way, we're increasing the quality of mindfulness and awareness so that in this moment, there's a more complete attunement, more complete harmony with the body's limits. If we're patient with that painful feeling, if we open the heart to it and bring forth the quality of acceptance, so like uh, that uh, aspect of metta or radical acceptance and kindness, then after a few minutes, it's easier to recognize when it is right to move. Okay, now it's enough. It's time. The body is now under strain, so this is the time to move it. In this way, the choice to change the posture is based on kindness towards the body rather than upon aversion to pain. Oh, a couple of things to say about that. So when, uh, if you notice, oftentimes we think, well, I'm concentrating on the breath. That's my, my practice, and this pain is getting in the way. So uh, uh, Lumpur Chao uh, uh, would give the standard advice of, you know, if you, uh, if you 
uh, are distracted by a painful feeling, you try to bring your attention back to the breath, but your, your mind keeps getting pulled back. After the third time it's pulled back to the painful feeling, just make the pain the object and sort of put the breath aside for the time being and use the, the painful feeling as the meditation object. And then um, with this, the, if even though we, the, we tend to stress, tense up against a pain and resist it, that very stressing, that tensing up of the muscles increases the causes of the pain. It brings more stress into the system. So even though there's a kind of relief, uh, sort of like a scratching an itch, that tensing up against it, the, the actual tensing, it, it creates more causes for, for pain. So it's a bit counterintuitive when you bring attention to a painful feeling, say in the knee, then to consciously relax the muscles in that area, then you're reducing the causes of the pain. So it's it's against that impulse to just tense up and resist it. But if you if you do, then you're you you're, you're diminishing the causes for the painful feeling. So the more the body is relaxed, then generally speaking, the the less pain there is. And this other principle that, um, I'm talking uh, talk about here in the in the last part. What I was really is very very important because if we change posture based on fear of pain, what kind of damage is going to happen to my body, impatience, uh, trying to get a, a, a aversion, so fear and aversion, if that's the cause, then even though when we change the posture, we might have a moment of relief and then, oh, thank goodness, then we're also creating the, 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 the conditions for more aversion and more fear. And so as soon as there's another little... <laughs> kind of another twinge then oh no it's come back again oh no oh no oh i thought i got rid of that oh no it's the other knee oh. and so the that having acted on aversive and fearful um uh say initiative uh, that being the, the what what informs the choice of, of changing the posture then that's the cause and so the effect matches that so as i was saying earlier that cause and effect are unified so if you have a, a cause that's based on fear and aversion then it's going to have a tense and aversive um, anxious result so um, uh, in in terms of of genuinely working with pain in a skillful way then to attune to the, the the body to know the body to feel the the, the sensation that's there to uh, uh, really attune the attention to that feeling, then you also bring into 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 action the intuitive sense of the body's limits. So even though it's not a calculation, there's just a, and you're using your own intuitive sense, the body's intelligence in a way of knowing. Okay, this this joint is now being stretched. It's being strained beyond a certain limit. That this is um, this is enough. <laughs> And so then, uh, out of kindness for the body, knowing, okay, now it's reached its limit, this is, this is definitely um, being stretched to a point of, of, um, of being overstretched, so now it's time to change the body, change the posture. And so then, it's a, a motivation is one of kindness and uh, the wise recognition of the body's limits. So because the, the, the choice is made based on wholesome and skillful attitudes, then um, the the result of, of changing the posture then has a much more peaceful and harmonious and well integrated uh, result. So uh, that's what I found over many many years of, of meditating, <laughs> working with painful feelings. 
that uh, it, it genuinely at least in my experience it, this is the way that it works and so it's very helpful to to um to be and also you need to be as honest as possible because the um uh the inner lawyer the inner legal committee can say well yeah i'm only changing the posture out of kindness this is strictly just kindness only <sighs> phew now i can get away from that nasty pain so it's Kind of presents itself as kindness, but the actuality is like I hate this. I'm afraid of it, and I want it to go away. So you have to be aware of the legal weaseling, not to abuse, be abusive towards weasels, but uh, that's sort of sneaky. I've got a very sneaky habits of mind, so um, I, I'm familiar with weaseling and the sneakiness the way that the, the the inner legal team can make a very good case of that this is actually genuinely uh, kindness and wholesome but uh, to be as honest and sincere as possible is uh, important if we move too quickly that's not helpful because we never learn to deal with the second arrow but if we don't move at all that could mean a trip to the osteopath or the hospital and uh, there's a long long list of monastics uh, uh, overzealous monastics who sit have uh, uh, got a very um, extravagant with their yoga postures. Um, one, one monk here actually um, wrecked, he wrenched his he wrecked his knee, demonstrating how not to put the, the legs into a lotus posture. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't do it like this. And then in that action, then it's like, oh, I think I just. And he had to go. To, he had to go to the doctor. So that was embarrassing. <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah. So there's a long, long list of people being overzealous and also coming from the sense of idealism. And like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make my. Uh, I'm going to get into full lotus and sit there for for three hours. Um, so it's important to not lead with the head, but to uh, develop the the practice with. Uh, mindfulness and wisdom so if we don't move at all it could mean a trip to the osteopath or to the hospital the middle way capital M capital W is based on the attunement of the heart to the reality of the way things are part of this reality is the body so that attunement to it is what guides our actions when we develop this attitude of acceptance of painful feeling it doesn't mean that we become numb or foolish it doesn't mean that we take no action Rather, there is a quality of wise attunement and mindfulness. Then we can make wise choices. Then we can make decisions based on the reality of the way things are, rather than on emotional reactivity, hatred, or desire. We don't deliberately create pain in order to make trouble for ourselves, but when it arises, we can work with it in this way and discover whether these principles are valid or not. It's important for everyone to find out for themselves whether things work in this way or whether they don't. Is this true or is it not? How do you find it to be? And maybe this the last thing to, to say on that. Um, so I, I like to use this phrase, a self-adjusting universe. So even though I use the phrase, we can make wise choices, um, in, uh, in essence, it's uh, even the, any sense of I and me and mine is going to, add sort of distortion or imbalance to the system so that the more that the the heart is really free of eye making and mind making and there's a genuine attunement to the the body and the the the, the time the place the situation then uh, we can trust that quality of awareness to be what guides 
a change of posture. And, uh, and so, um, rather than the choices, like me making choices to do what to do with my posture, rather letting that, the me and mine out of the picture altogether, and then trusting in awareness, then you find that the, the posture will adjust on its own, or that sense of, okay, now's the time to, to move, that arises on its own. And it's not really me making a choice, it's an effort, uh, really, samavayamo, right effort, or attuned effort, is uh, guided by mindfulness and wisdom, rather than me making a choice, or me deciding what's uh, what, what to do. So there's... Samavayama, uh, right effort, doesn't have any self, uh, any self view or any conceit involved in it, and so, um, and I think in the morning reflections in the temple, I was mentioning that a few times. How uh, if we uh, cultivate that quality of awareness and, let, and there's a letting go of all, all kind of eye making and mind making, then the the system adjusts on its own. It's a self-adjusting universe of which your body and your mind are a part. So, my goodness, seven o'clock has come around already. <laughs> Any questions, thoughts, reflections? Silence. Yes, sister. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if it's a if it's sukha vedana, um, and so that uh, you um, uh, promising in so far as if you take a, if you're hungry and you take a bite of some food that is uh, you experience as pleasant. Then uh, you, you take a mouthful and you go, "Ooh, this is this is good. This is a good apple or whatever." Um, and so then that is what I would suggest is, is meant by promise. That then you there's a, there a looking for a recognizing. Oh, this is this is delicious, and it there's a promise that the rest of the apple will also have a similar sort of delicious or pleasing uh, experience or bring an experience with it. So it's just that um, how the mind um, holds that uh, pleasant experience and uh, creates a sense of of enjoyment and, and looking forward to uh, continuing that. Say if, the, if there's more of the apple still to eat. So the, the vedana is just a pleasant thing, but the mind is the one that creating more. Uh, well, I think the 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 question Anagarika Evgenia was asking about. So that that feeling of of promise is that, uh, 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 or that uh, uh, is that part of the tanha, the, the crossing the bridge to to tanha, uh, and uh, you, know, you could read it in different ways. Maybe it's putting a foot onto the bridge, <laughs> if I, because of the recognition of oh, more yeah, there's a oh. More of this would be would be uh, would be nice would be good. So you're recognizing that there's a there's a feeling of attraction or interest. But if there's enough mindfulness, then you know that that attraction or that interest it's only got so uh, it's not something that has to be followed. So that there's an there's an attraction there's liking. 
No, no, that's just that. I would that, that liking. I would say is in the realm of of feeling. It's like it's sukhavedana. That uh, the there's that you know that the the mind can like this. Oh, this is this is delicious. Uh, this is beautiful. Uh, I, mean, I like this. Um, but that liking uh, doesn't have to to lead to. Uh, there can still be a very clear and spacious appreciation of of liking. Without the mind being caught up in that, no. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's a it's a very that's a very important principle, really. That because uh, with letting go of, of tanha, it's not a matter of never experiencing dislike or like. You know, pain is still painful. And pleasure is still pleasurable, but uh, like, or like the Buddha you know, referring to his back pain, like that, it's still painful, and that he would he would say, uh, you know, that my my back is paining me. I'm going to go and, and stretch my you know, stretch out to rest my back, um, so that uh, he he not only did he feel the pain, he was uh, ready to take action to relieve the pain. But still, the mind was not giving rise to to tanha. It's like taking, and I feel that's a very those are very significant teachings. So that he was mindfully taking steps to reduce the pain, uh, but without creating a problem out of it, without from from the basis of, of enlightenment. And uh, so I feel that's a, those are really important examples for us. And it's because sometimes we we tend to think, oh, an enlightened person, they they're completely beyond like and dislike. They don't feel anything, or they don't. They're not. They're completely indifferent, or the, the things those liking it, the pleasant and painful don't really register. But that's a, a I'd say, it's a really incorrect understanding. I understand. So when you without experience the peaceful of meditation, say that again. Experience peacefulness. Yeah. Meditation, yeah, yeah. There is an acknowledgement that this is pleasant. Mm-hmm. But there is no attachment. But when it's regard to food, same same. same. But then you have, for example, I uh, I don't like meat, and I always avoid meat because I don't like it. And when I eat the meat, there is all this uh, <laughs> anger coming and, and unpleasant feeling. And first is a feeling, and then it's a reaction to the feeling. Uh, you'd you'd have to tell me. I mean, because I mean, it's yeah. uh, we each have to sort of know our own mind and how the mind works. Okay, I couldn't I, I couldn't guess. It's first is a feeling, and then a the reaction to it. And and but the the feeling is unpleasant because uh, either to the touch or to the smell or the taste or the seeing of the meat. And and then this the mind reacts to it. But if if I'm mindful, then I see all this process, and I can cut this all this happening, mm-hmm. that attachment to it. But there is no more judging. This is pleasant. This is unpleasant. This is you know. It's just oh, that's suffering. But there is no more like preference towards this and that. And so there is no more promise. 
in the, it's a promise if I eat the meat, maybe I will see more suffering, so maybe it's better for me. But um, there is no more promise in this, uh, pleasant like fruits or in the meat. So that's why I don't see the, the promise in, in, in the food. <laughs> I think it depends a little bit on exactly how one is using the word. But uh, uh, also, I see it's getting towards ten past seven, so uh, don't want to continue too long. But um, yeah, the uh, thing distinguishing between what is the the uh, using the meditation to distinguish what is the the, the feeling, like the two arrows, the 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 painful feeling and the unpleasant feeling, either physical or, or mental, and then noticing when the mind starts to add to that, and the more the the more simply that the the mind receives or the, here is the uh here is the the uh you know the physical pain or here is the the feeling of of dislike or 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 disgust or and that's uh, this is the arisen feeling and it's like this then recognizing that that doesn't have to be added to that's the that doesn't have to be to be bought into um I said that's the important thing. Exactly. Uh, so it's uh, using the practice to get clear about that, uh, how the second arrow can be avoided. That's the important thing. Okay, let's leave it there for today. Sadhu karam dadamase Sadhu, Sadhu.